Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. As our field increasingly needs us to be more creative, more innovative, and more effective, a career in music can be approached in a lot of different ways. In our bonus episode series, Mavericks, we bring you the voices of some of the Double Read community's biggest trailblazers, each forging their musical path in their own unique way. For this special Mavericks episode, we bring you bassoonist Midori Sampson. Welcome, Midori. Hi, thank you. I'd love to start by asking you um, about how you came to the bassoon and uh, what you're doing these days. I was always really little. I was always a runt and got really sick of being pushed around and being tiny and knew that I needed some kind of like weapon to protect me from that. And the bassoon is weird and it's huge and it makes a statement and it was the perfect thing to be a distraction from my tininess and I've kept it as my weapon as I stayed little I've stayed four foot ten it has been the perfect thing to make me stand out and make me confident to be on a stage Um, I'm not really sure how I came to it I don't know if anyone really knows I know that I've been asking to play it since I was four years old or something And nobody really knows why I knew what it was. But I've always known that it was my thing. Isn't that weird? I love it. (laughs) I also love that you're smaller than me. I'm five foot one. So it's a rarity that I find someone who I can dwarf. I love it. Oh, yeah. The giant in this conversation. (laughs) Cool. Can we hear a little bit about your um, academic training and where your professional life has taken you? I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and was ready to, at the end of high school, move as far away as I could. So I went to New York City. I went to Juilliard, and I studied with Frank Morelli, and then immediately went to get my master's at UT Austin with Kristen Wolf Jensen. Then finished school and was lucky to have employment, and now I'm in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, where I'm a member of the orchestra and also a fellow, which means that I do uh, a lot of community engagement work in Chicago, um, curating different projects around the city, uh, and then I also play with the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra in Madison. And piecing together all these things has been the best career so far, figuring out how to make it all work with scheduling and financially, and also it's given me a beautiful balance of playing great music and also getting to educate Can you tell us um, about some of the community engagement work that you're doing right now through Civic? We do projects throughout the year uh, that take us outside Symphony Center to make music. So my favorite project last season was a songwriting workshop in a boys' prison. We -hmm. spent a week and recorded an album with them and then did a concert in the prison. We do a workshop in a retirement home 
where we're having the residents write stories and write text, and then we set it to music and have them perform with us on stage. Civic has also been really supportive of my own work. Five years ago, with some of my best friends, I founded Tradewinds Ensemble, which is a quintet and a composer. And we first did a three-week teaching residency in Kenya. Then we went back to East Africa and expanded to Tanzania also. And Civic has supported me doing the same work in Chicago. We partnered with a refugee center last year to do a two-week music camp, and Civic helped make that happen. I'd love to hear more about the Tradewinds Quintet. Um, can you tell us maybe about how you guys came to be and this um, the activities that you guys engage in and your mission seems really unique. Can you talk about um, how you came to engage in this type of thing and why it's important to you? Tradewinds was founded at a, a really crappy gig <laughs> in New York, and we all had in common that we were kind of burnt out and kind of bored. You know, we came to music because it's the greatest thing ever. It's amazing and it's beautiful, but we were kind of like, we need a little more. So we knew that we needed to be working with children, teaching not necessarily music, but teaching the skills that come with being an artist, and we know how to use music to teach those things. The horn player who we were with at that gig was from Nairobi, Kenya, and even though we knew that this work could be done anywhere and should be done everywhere, we had this connection, this convenient starting point of going to Nairobi. So we spent a year planning and raising $10,000, and it was, like, so ambitious, but I was, like, 20 years old and didn't really care. <laughs> <laughs> and we made it happen, and we went, and we curated this beautiful residency where, for the first week, we were doing instrumental workshops in schools around Nairobi. I think there are four schools in Nairobi that had music programs and we got to work with all of them. And then the second and third weeks, we were doing um, music classes at a primary school in a slum, but they didn't have any instruments at all, so we were doing a lot of songwriting and composing and listening, really like critical listening to music, and always performing us with the students all together on stage. And we were teaching not, again, not how to be a musician, but how to think like a musician, how to be super curious all the time, and to be confident to share your unique voice, or to work in a team to produce something from scratch. All the reasons that we were drawn to music to begin with. Mm. And so I left Kenya with this amazing, like, new perspective and new joyfulness about playing the bassoon and new confidence in that my music making can like really make a difference in the world. 
And I came back and I, I started my junior year at Juilliard. And Mr. Morelli, in one of my first lessons, was like, you sound better than ever. You must have practiced really hard this summer. And I was like, actually, I, like, barely played. I know that's really bad, but I I did this thing instead. And he really connected with, like, oh, those kids taught you something. That's mm-hmm. more important than any hours spent this summer practicing. And then it was too good so we went back again, and we made it happen, and we will always keep making it happen. What was the response like? What was the feeling in the room during the collaborations and the concerts with, you know, the kids that you were working with? There's a lot of nuance, I think, with doing this kind of work, especially in East Africa, where there's such a risk of, like, volunteerism and, like, white mm-hmm. savior stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were always really cautious of that. Mm-hmm. We unfortunately experienced a lot of like, we're so thankful these Americans are here. We're so thankful that these white people are here. And that's hard. Uh, but once I, I think that's the important reason, that's a reason to spend more time there because after two days of that, we were their equals in a lot of ways. We were not their teachers, but their facilitators to draw from their experiences to make art, which made us not white people anymore, but their friends and their equals, which meant that our music could be deeper and better, you know, and, and, we went into it so green and not knowing completely what to do. I think we tried early on to like play Mozart. We, we, we had prepared a quintet arrangement of Symphonia Concertante because we were playing it with the orchestra there. And I mean, they loved it. They think it's, I mean, there's a bassoon in front of you. Like that's the weirdest, coolest thing ever. Of course they loved it. But then we were like, why should these children in this slum give a damn about Mozart? Yes, it's important to us and it's beautiful to us, but let's instead have them in the shoes of the composer or in the shoes of the performer so that they get a deeper understanding of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did that, how did that shift affect your mission going forward and your viewpoint going forward? Like what kind of music did you work on, like, in your second trip? Our return was a lot about sustainability. We kind of thought of that first visit as, like, a site visit and to find the partners we want to work with and to find out what the students' needs actually were. But the return was about, you know, we'd collected all this data, we knew what we wanted to do, and went back with more, even more emphasis on composing and songwriting we took a step back and we were like we don't need to be teaching rhythms or um even really about the bassoon i can i can have it in the room and like use it as a teaching tool and if they ask about it i'll tell them about it but otherwise why do i need to do an instrument demo it should just be part of my identity to them so much more focus on like 
foundations using um, masterpieces of music and art to learn the foundations of it so that they can make their own versions of it. Mm -hmm. We were also there with the intention of finding future collaborators who we could train to be doing the work we're doing so that we don't have to be there as foreigners or as white people who are teaching. But instead, maybe someday we can provide an employment opportunity for a local person to be doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. So is the idea that this would be a long-term relationship and investment that continues over time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of me is like, we've gone a few times, we've done all this cool stuff, and we've probably touched a handful of lives. And like, maybe that's good enough. And and we celebrate that because that's a beautiful thing. But always, just like we do with bassoon playing, like always looking for something that's better, and always looking for a way to improve. Um, How can we make this project better? The same way that we try to make our own playing better. You also work with the organization Artists Striving to End Poverty. Can you talk to us about what you do with them? So ASTEP is the biggest, I think, inspiration for Tradewinds and our curriculum and our model and our mission. I got connected with ASTEP when I was at Juilliard because it was founded by a group of Juilliard actors uh, in the early 2000s. I was... At Juilliard, I was so lucky to be at a school where um, they support that kind of work because of ASTEP and their close relationship with ASTEP. So it was natural for me to get involved with ASTEP when I lived in New York and then take everything I learned from them and the way to teach these skills to children, to trade wins. I, I just got back from India about six weeks ago, um, where I was managing the team of volunteer artists who were on the ground teaching at a school in Bangalore, uh, and that was with ASTEP. And that's a project that's also so important to me and has taught me so much about my playing and my teaching. Can you go more into detail about the work you were doing there at, I believe it's Shanti Bhavan, the school that you were yeah. at? Yeah, okay. Shanti Bhavan. So I was the program facilitator, which meant I was supervising this team of 12 teaching artists. They were teaching music, musical theater, dance, theater, film, and visual art. And uh, my job was to be kind of the stage manager for all of them to make, make sure everything was running smoothly so we could give the best camp to the children that we could. And this is the same kind of thing where... Uh, The children don't really have instruments. They don't really have a ton of resources and materials to do the arts. But they're so hungry for all of that and all of that kind of learning that you can be in an empty classroom and, like, use body percussion and you have an amazing music class happening. And, again, all of that... We, we were teaching for about two weeks, and then all of it culminated in a final performance. And that's the same model that we use with trade wins. The only difference being that at ASTEP, they teach all of the art forms, 
which is so cool. There's nothing, I think there's nothing better for my education as an, a music performer and music teacher than collaborating with actors and dancers to teach. And I took that inspiration and that's where Tradewinds model came from, but we wanted to focus specifically on music and see if we could make the same kind of impact. Um, has your work with A-Step and Tradewinds changed how you see the role of classical music or Western music? Like, does it, does it change how you approach the, um, your work in Civic and the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra? I mean, yeah, of course. There's nothing like trying to teach a class of 25 four-year-olds about music. There's nothing like that to teach you patience and adaptability. Uh-huh. And, you know, once you, once I was faced with situations like that, it's really hard to go to a rehearsal and, like, complain about the height of my music stand or, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, or, like, uh, it's really hard to complain about anything, really. Mm-hmm. Once you are faced with, like, kids who are, you're trying to teach and they're, like, peeing their pants, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, A huge adaptability and uh, patience. Um, Extreme, I've learned, like, extreme joy and thankfulness to be a musician because I've seen directly the kind of impact it makes on someone's life to be I think of this one child this boy from the Congo who we worked with at Refugee One this summer and his name was Seba and he was the most challenging boy I've ever worked with because no matter what I think I think there was a lot of there was a big history of trauma and a lot of pain, um, but no matter what, we couldn't get Seba to engage or to participate or to do anything but like either throw a tantrum or cry. But in our final sharing on this last day when we had this performance, we had everyone who wanted to come up and individually sing the do re mi solfege scale with the hand symbols like that was their favorite thing ever for some reason to perform (laughs) and everybody did it which is a miracle in itself I mean to have 25 kids who will get up and sing in a performance by themselves a scale that's beautiful but to make it even more beautiful was that Seba for the first time we heard this little voice and little Seba got up and sang alone. And it was, we all looked at each other, all of the members of Tradewinds, and we all just started weeping and had to, like, chill out to not make a scene. <laughs> but, but it was, it was like, the most beautiful moment ever. And, and to get to be a part of that and to see the things that music does for anyone's soul like makes me go to rehearsal and just like play the crap out of everything Mm -hmm. that I get assigned to play 
So while you were in Austin, you taught a course connecting listeners and music at UT, uh, geared at grad students and helping them design lesson plans to help shelters and community organizations. How, can you talk to us about that experience and also why it was important to you to share the ideas that you have, your musical approach and the work that you do with other people in our field? Well, first, shout out to KWJ for being, <laughs> like, the coolest professor ever and wanting to collaborate on that. She uh-huh. and I co-taught it together, and it was her idea to do it. It, I mean, shout out to her for giving me the space in grad school to, like, not just become the best bassoonist I could be, but to do that. So cool. Yes, Delaria Dish very much endorses KWJ <laughs> with many praise hand emojis. We're totally on board. Symbols, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and shout out to Mr. Morelli, too, who gave me the space in my undergrad to be exactly who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so cool. Um, but we taught this class. We called it CLAM because of the, the letters connecting <laughs> listeners and music. Um, and it was, it's always been important to me to, once I've gotten really confident in my style doing this work and seeing, um, what works and what needs help, it's always been important to me to, like, spread the agenda to my, my peers and my colleagues. So we, it was a semester-long class, and we spent the beginning of it, learning the foundations of this and, like, how to how to engage effectively and responsibly, mm-hmm. which always, to me, means putting the audience directly into the music making. You know, it's it doesn't do much to do, I think, like, spoken program notes are, like, really cool, but what if you can actually have the audience making the music with you and engaging mm-hmm. in that way. So we were teaching uh, the grad students how to do that and then giving them the opportunity to practice it using the connections that KWJ and I had made in Austin, um, an LGBT shelter uh, for youth, um, a shelter for undocumented immigrants, stuff like that, and having the class grad students go and actually try out activities in those spaces. Um, I learned, I mean, some of them might hear this. They were all my really good friends who took this class, but I think for that semester, they hated me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I I mean, we were demanding of them a lot Mm -hmm. because – that's the nature of this work. Like, it really does take a lot. And if you give it everything, you get the rewards of it. It feels really good and empowering to produce something from scratch and, like, touch lives. But it's it was hard work, and, and these poor grad students, like, we put them through a lot. And, you know, the result was that these beautiful engagement projects happened all over Austin. But getting there was hard, and nobody liked me. (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to take that class. Are there any plans to make it available, like, online or 
I like, mean, handbook or something? Yeah, it's it's definitely a mission in my life to to do that. I I I want to like take more time to reflect on it because I want to do it better and not have everyone hate me and not be turned off from the work. <laughs> and like I I'm worried that I turned people off from doing the work because it was so hard and that is like so not what I want to do. I want everyone to feel invited into this and like get addicted to it like I am. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm working on that now in civic with my peers um, to, to try to suck them in and like show them that it's the best thing ever. So when you're like 85 years old and looking back on your life, how what does a successful career in music look like to you? I think it's one that found the balance of being the best player I can be and also being the best and most responsible educator engager I can be. I mean, I don't think I don't think I'm going to be happy with my career unless I like save the world. Mhm. <laughs> I know that's <laughs> that's like so funny to say out loud, but we just have such a responsibility to like make everything better. That's what music is for. Mhm. And you know, I can I can do that in a small way and be happy, but I I really want to I really want to save the world. Go I big or go home. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can do that with the bassoon. I think of all the instruments bassoon and oboe like is going to do that. Well, that kind of starts a conversation, right? Because it you say in your blog there should need no separation between great artistry and social consciousness. And I love our field and I love what we do, but um, at times it it requires um, or maybe unintentionally promotes, you know, um, I don't want to say selfishness, but self-interest, perhaps. Self-involvement, maybe. Yeah, and competitiveness and isolation. Totally. And maybe even you know, at times elitism and Western ideals and that type of thing, enculturating us to those ideas without even realizing it. So if someone, not to say I would be this person, um, but if someone is listening (laughs) and wondering why, why can I not just play my oboe or my violin or my whatever, why would it be worth it to engage in this type of work and why is it important to bring the music that we do to people who do not typically have access to it, what would you say to that person? Well, there's like, I think there's different levels to how much you have to buy into everything I'm saying. Like, like there's this extreme level, I think, where like all of my collaborators and Tradewinds are obsessed with educating and like obsessed with putting children on stage. Like that's an extreme and then there's there's something that's not as extreme, which is I think a musician who like, and I hope this I this people can identify with this, but who, you know, is an amazing um, artist at their instrument and like plays so well and is that's what they will do forever. 
And even that person, I think, has to approach every interaction they have with warmth and with openness because that's what will save the art form. Like if, if, if those musicians are approaching people who are new to classical music or to new to the concert hall and they approach them with like being closed and being unkind, that it might turn off an audience member for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And that is going to destroy the art form if no one is coming and no one's coming to support it. But if you can, like, be a musician who, you know, people always ask me, like, the what what is the thing on my back? Or, like, is that a violin on your back? And, like, I could be a jerk and say, uh, no, it's not a violin, and, like, walk away. But if I approached that with warmth and was like, no, it's a bassoon, and here's what a bassoon is, and here's a ticket to my concert tonight. Maybe mm-hmm. that's like a new lifelong subscriber to the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So speaking of audience, something I've been really reflecting on a lot lately is we talk about the audience and how to build the audience a lot in classical music, but I feel like we almost exclusively talk about it in terms of age, right? Our audience is too old. Our audience mm-hmm. is aging out. And there are a lot of ways to group people. Do you think that it's, equally important as age to think about socioeconomic background and and racial diversity and that type of thing in terms of thinking about growing our audience? Yeah, and I wonder if we don't do that because it's harder to do that. Mm -hmm. It's, like, really hard to have an honest conversation with ourselves about race in classical music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, speak for the civic orchestra, but I think – it seems like in their mission is to is to change that in music. I mean, a big reason we work with, like, the People's Music School and, like, institutions that are nurturing young musicians of color is so that we can, so that we can train them to be amazing and provide them with the opportunities to, like, be the best in the field so that in 20 years they'll be in the Civic or in the Chicago Symphony or in any of these big orchestras. But I think that has to happen now and with younger people. And we have to be like patient with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that's another reason why I want to be working with children Mm. because I think it has to start there. So what projects do you have or concerts do you have coming up on the horizon that you're excited about? It scares me to say it out loud because then I have to put it in the universe and then do it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this week, I'm obsessed with this project, so I guess I'll say it out loud. Um, I So in, if we're talking about race and classical music and diversity, um, I am talking to eight composers who live across the African continent to write music with me and for me and for the bassoon. And I came to this with like three big reasons. The first being that I'm someone who it's like, it's important to me to play works written by people of color and written by women, but I haven't done it. And there's not a ton of 
um, repertoire for the bassoon that that can be said about. And I've just been thinking a lot about my aesthetic, and I'm like, how how is that possible that this is something that's important to me and I haven't even done it? Mm. Um, the second being that if I'm going to keep working with children in East Africa and in Chicago from the Congo, uh, they deserve to be hearing music that is written by people who they could strive to be like. Mm-hmm instead of dead white dudes. <laughs> um, so, and then third, we have this really sad, really icky, um, complicated view of what Africa means in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because of our media and, like, you know, because of the things we're taught to assume about Africa. And so I, I want to maybe change a few minds with what that means by playing art music and beautiful bassoon music written by real living people who live on that continent. So I'm commissioning a bunch of stuff and I'll perform it in the spring. And I'm making eight new really good friends in this process and learning more about how to talk about this stuff. That's my next project. Awesome. That I can't wait to check that out. I think it needs to be a CD, Midori, obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God. oh my God. I buy it. Okay. I guess I have to do that now, too, if it's in the universe. <laughs> I'm putting in my pre-order right now. Yes, same. Um, so when our listeners are inevitably um, inspired by the good work that you're doing, and thank you for doing it, by the way, where can our listeners find more information about artists striving to end poverty and the Tradewinds Ensemble on the Internet? So a step. Artists Striving to End Poverty is online at astepconline.org. And then Tradewinds, I have to change this <laughs> this website because we're not a quintet anymore. We're an ensemble. But it's tradewindsquintet.com. Also, civicfellows.org, where uh, the civic members blog about our engagement stuff around Chicago. Awesome. And I will make sure to put the links to those in the show notes. Midori, thank you so much for joining us today. What a great chat. Wow. Thank you. This is so fun.